Hi, welcome to Back to Excited, episode 149. My name is Urban. Joining me as always, my colleague from PensionPlanPuppets.com. It's acting the Fulman. Hi, everybody. Uh, how are you doing, Fulman? None too shabby. How about yourself? Uh, I'm good. We have trades to discuss and uh, expansion stuff to discuss. This podcast is a little bit awkwardly timed because we don't have like perfect information about everything that's happened around the league with the expansion draft, but we have good information about what happened with the Leafs, and that's really the only thing that matters. <laughs> Center of the Universe Strikes Again. Yes. So um, last night or last afternoon, yesterday afternoon, the Leafs made a trade. They, they traded for uh, Jared McCann from the Pittsburgh Penguins. Uh, what they gave up was Philip Hollander, a prospect who they got from the Pittsburgh Penguins in the Kasperi Kapanen deal last year, and a seventh round pick, which I believe is two years from now. 2023. 2023. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, as we said many times, we're not prospect guys. We don't know that much about Hollander from all accounts, he appeared to be tracking to be, you know, possibly a, a lower-end NHL player, a useful depth player. Not nothing. Um, not someone who changes your franchise in all likelihood. So that it's not a particularly high price to pay. Uh, the reason Jared McCann was available was because Pittsburgh was not going to be able to protect him. Mm-hmm. Uh, or didn't want to protect him. You know, one, one of the two, however you want to view that. Uh, and they, Pittsburgh presumably figured, okay, we're going to lose this guy. Let's get something for him. Yes. So, um, this is an interesting deal because it's hard to evaluate this w- w- uh, without also evaluating what the Leafs are going to do expansion draft-wise. Um, but let's, for the moment, briefly talk about McCann just as a player. Uh, do you have any immediate thoughts on him, Fuleman? I know Kevin Papetti has liked him for a while. and uh, You know, mm-hmm. Kevin sometimes has written at Pension Plan Puppets. He writes for Maple Leaf Sodstove. He's a smart guy, astute observer of the game. Uh, He's picked out players and prospects in the past who turned out to be useful additions. So, you know, it gives me some hope that Kevin was high on this acquisition. This feels a little bit like we got a Kerfoot who's a somewhat better shooter and a bit taller. But we'll slot into the same sort of role. And obviously that'll be relevant to the expansion stuff we talk about later. But he feels like that tier of player. Second line left wing, third line center, that sort of thing going on. Yeah, I think in some sense that's a bit of the low end scenario, right? So we, we should mention that over the last two years, basically since McCann got to Pittsburgh, his uh, his stats have looked really, really good. And, you know, we're talking about fancy stats like GAR and RAPM, but we're also just talking his point rates and, you know, scoring, which has been very, very good over the past couple of years. Now, last year in particular, the most recent season, um, he had an absurdly high online shooting percentage, an absurdly high personal shooting percentage, almost certainly not happening again. That was like, you know, it, it's just one of those years where everything breaks right. Uh, however, the year before is arguably just as encouraging because uh, he had, you know, a strong year. I think he, he posted around 1.85 points per 60, which is very respectable, good secondary scoring. Um, and he drove play well. Now, this is, I think, the natural natural worry when a guy goes to Pittsburgh sees their numbers improve is okay they were on the Crosby Malkin uh you know gravy train now with McCann I don't believe he ever really played much with either of those guys uh certainly he played a little bit with them but neither were his primary line mates his primary line mates in 2019-20 were guys like Dominic Cahoon uh Patrick Hornvis Dominic Simone uh good good wingers but it seemed McCann was more so playing uh third line center in that year and generally had uh, decent results, right? RAPM views him as a 
positive play driver that year by XG and around neutral by Corsi. Hockey uh, views him as relatively neutral. For a guy playing third line center, you know, by definition, a below average player in your lineup, that's, that's more than fine. And with a, a little bit of scoring touch and a little bit of power play offense, he's a useful player. Mm-hmm. Um, this last year, the, it, it, was, it was quite different in, in that he played, from what I can see, a bit more of a wing. He played the wing with Jeff Carter, played the wing for a few games with Evgeny Malkin. Um, his scoring rate increased dramatically, and uh, his play driving impact seemed to be more positive as well. So I think, to some extent, Fulham and I are in a once-bitten-twice-shy scenario because a lot of this stuff does bring to mind what we said about Alex Kerfoot when we acquired him in the Nazem Kadri deal. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he, he had, Kerfoot had a couple years of a fairly high shooting percentage, although he was, I think, much more shot-averse than McCann is. Um, he had, you know, a couple years that looked very, very good by advanced stats, probably not quite as good as McCann's 29, or sorry, most recent season, 2020, 2021. Uh, but there is that element of fear there. That said, I don't see... A strong argument for McCann being, you know, a bad player. I think the worst case scenario is that he he's, you know, around the level of Kerfoot or slightly worse. I don't think it's a guarantee that he's way better than Kerfoot next year or even better at all. I think when you get to this caliber of players, these third line centers, these complementary players, there, there's the difference between them on a year to year basis uh, in terms of true talent, if however we want to describe that, can be swamped by just variance um, and, and uncertainty in how guys project to new systems, new teammates, all that sort of thing. But, you know, if, if McCann is anywhere near what his stats say over the last two years, then this is an unbelievable deal on an unbelievable contract. If he remains on the team. And there's the rub. Now, I think that it's important to remember going into the expansion draft, your starting point is not net neutral. Your starting point is minus one player. And I think that a lot of teams, especially with the Vegas draft maybe outsmarted themselves a little bit and kind of struggled with whether what they were doing was actually benefiting them on the whole. You know, they would get obsessed. Okay, we got to protect this guy. And so we're going to make a couple of side moves. And they probably ended up worse off than they would have been if they just said, hey, Seattle, or in this case, hey, Vegas, take whoever you want. Um, it looks like what the Leafs are doing here is going 4-4-1. So they would protect... They're big four forwards and they're big four defensemen. Um, big four defensemen is an interesting turn of phrase. But the big four forwards are Matthews, Marner, Nylander, Tavares. Okay. Big four defensemen are Riley, Brody, Muzzin, and apparently Justin Hall. And so that leaves both Kerfoot and McCann exposed. And you can immediately see a logic there saying, okay, both of these guys can be competent second line left wings or third line centers. Maybe a little more in the case of McCann, we hope. But either way, we're left with at least one of them. And before, we would have been left with probably zero of them. So it's possible to just look at this and say, okay, we got some sort of insurance at this this position. It, Again, for not an incredibly high cost, you know, Hollander in a seventh. Yeah, and Hollander is like is, a B-plus yeah. prospect, it seems like. Mm-hmm. You know, as we've been saying, he's, he's fine, he's interesting, but it's not something to you know, lose your mind over. So, okay, that's all well and good. I think there's an open question of whether to prioritize protecting Justin Hall in this way. And I, to be clear, like him. I think that he's better than guy off the street. I also think 
he's very evidently the number two man on that pairing compared to Jake Muzzin. Watch the way you talk to the best shutdown defender in Canada, okay? <laughs> We're never going to let that go, are we? Uh, it, it was dumb at the time, and it's gotten dumber every time I've thought about it. Yeah, it's one of those things where you really should not say that because it's silly. So, I know that Justin Hall has a particular value in that he's inexpensive, and he works. And, you know, Muzzin Hall has been at least close to the best pairing that the Leafs have had in recent years. Riley Brody last year was maybe better or close to it. But, you know, for the first time we have a defense we can rely on. I get wanting to hang on to that. But every time we think, okay, maybe McCann is actually quite good. Maybe this is a steal and a good ad. You almost feel like, okay, if we just get him and lose him to Seattle on a couple of days, that's going to feel kind of silly. And we don't know if the Leafs have a protection deal in place that will prevent that. Yes. So one possibility is they pay Seattle to take Kerfoot. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and this is one of the things where from the outside, it's incredibly hard to calibrate what that should be. Um, I can see the argument for them wanting to do it. Uh, as we covered, McCann is a good player. He's had a very good uh, last couple of years. If he repeats that, he is certainly better than Kerfoot. The, the, the risk from the least perspective is that he, you know, that was uh, not real in some sense or not transferable from Pittsburgh to Toronto. And in that case, I think he kind of becomes around you know, the distribution of his uh, play becomes quite similar to that of Kerfoot's. Um, so, you know, if, if you look at it that way, like the, a very kind of simplistic way to look at it is the, the lower end outcome is McCann is more or less what we have now with Kerfoot um, and slightly cheaper to boot. It, that would be, it, it would seemingly be an improvement to have him on the roster. Um, so if they want to protect uh, McCann effectively no clue what that's going to cost because it depends on how Seattle values Kerfoot both to themselves and maybe as a trade asset it depends on how Seattle values whatever we want to sweeten them their 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 uh, or whatever we want to sweeten with like if we want to give them Travis Dermott to take um, to take Kerfoot well is, is that actually useful to them do they care mm-hmm. um, there was Friedman had a or not Friedman someone uh, I was in the athletic actually I think when uh, they were talking I was an article about uh the Blues' relationship with uh, Vladimir Tarasenko. But like buried in there was, was the fact that um, the St. Louis GM had s- tried to shop Vince Dunn and basically didn't get anything worth more than a third-round pick. And I think that's a pretty good uh, case study for what Travis Dermott's value around the league is because Dunn and Dermott are cut from the same cloth in the sense that they've had very nice results when played sh- in, in sheltered roles. They haven't been fully trusted to take on bigger roles, although that's less true of Dunn than Dermot. Dunn has, I think this most recent year, he actually was maybe the fourth or third defenseman on, on the Blues. Um, and their trade value doesn't seem to be that high, right? So, you know, I, I would view, in that lens, I would view a third-round pick as the ceiling of Dermot's uh, value. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, all of this to say, we don't know how it's going to play out on that front, but it does seem the Leafs have valued the... Um, or have have kind of thought that it is more difficult than maybe we might think to replace Justin Hall. And I think that's less about Justin Hall being particularly good and more about Hall and Muzzin as a pairing largely working and the uncertainty that comes with trying to find another guy to fit into that, right? If you look at, you know, the isolated impacts and stuff, uh, Justin Hall looks like nothing spectacular. In fact, he looks aggressively meh. 
and, and possibly even worse. Um, but one of the things I, I feel this centralization on isolation metrics considers and, and what we lose out when we do so is that when you look at the, the pairing together of, of how you plan on using it, if that is doing well, then to some extent, if you're a, uh, a someone building a team, you're like, okay, well, do I really want to mess with this and take on the fear of the unknown, the fear of, un of mistranslation? If I get another eye, maybe even who has better isolates or whatever, does he, is he guaranteed to actually work on this pairing? Is he guaranteed to actually make this pairing better than it is? And the Muzzin Hall pairing for, you know, all the nits you can pick about Justin Hall, and God knows we have, was, was something that worked. And I can see the Leafs saying, look, this was fine. We don't want to touch this. We have really limited resources. We're, we're spending effectively $2 million on someone who's playing in our top four, whether he's a top four defenseman or not in an abstract context is immaterial. His value to us is the fact that he is part of a essentially first pair that is working. Mm -hmm. And we don't want to mess with that because for $2 million, we're not sure if we can replace that and the downside is too great. This isn't necessarily what I would do, but I do see the logic in it. And, and this is something Katya um, and I discussed yesterday. And I, you know, she kind of made this point to me, right? I'm very kind of shamelessly stating her points, which is nothing new on this podcast. Um, but, and, you know, I, I disagreed with her at the time. And I still kind of do because I think it is possible to replace Justin Hall. But I also see the argument for, for not doing it. It's, it's, it's coherent. It's not dumb, mm -hmm. right? It, it, it's something that makes sense. And it just depends on how you value Hall and the difficulty in replacing him via UFA. And sorry, I know I'm monologuing here, and I'll, I'll throw it to you for in just a second. But one of the other things is the Leafs do have some information about um, the UFA market. I mean, they shouldn't because, of course, that would be tampering. Um, and we would never do that. <laughs> no teams have ever done that, actually. No, no, not at all. Mm -hmm. But I, I think the Leafs maybe have some good guesses as to, you know, free agent targets, what they would want, whether they're interested in Toronto. This is something we talk about a lot. It's very easy to say, oh, you could sign X person for whatever money that they end up getting. That person might not want to come to Toronto for whatever reason. Maybe their family lives in the U.S. Maybe they just don't like Canada, especially now in a pandemic. Like maybe they have school-aged kids. They don't want to take their kids out of their school. There's a lot of reasons. So um, all that being said, what they've done is not what I would have done, but it's not inexplicable to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think that there's a definite logic there. And you say for a long time we were wandering in a wasteland of trying to find competent defense pairings that that worked really well together, even though I think everyone is going to agree. Jake Muzzin is uh, the driver there. He's the better defensive presence. He's solid. He's physical. He's just a smart player. But I think it's undeniable that Justin Hall seems to work well with him in terms of Hall being a more agile skater, a bit more of a puck mover, and maybe there's some synergy there. And so there is a definite element of if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And... You know, there is definitely an argument to just say, look, as I said at the start of this segment, you're losing a guy to Seattle. That's how the expansion draft works. You don't get out of this with the same team. And maybe that's Alex Kerfoot. And you say, okay, what the Leafs have done is effectively conceded we're probably going to lose Alex Kerfoot or Jared McCann, who is going to be like him. And either way, we'll come out of this with at least someone who has a prayer of playing second line left wing or third line center. And that's good. I think if... Yeah, pretty, you know, pretty much. Sorry, just if we sound a little... If I... Let's be honest, this is my problem. If I sound a little muted about this deal, it's because it hasn't fixed it. And because the overarching problems with the team remain in place. And you could say, well, 
the point of this deal is not to fix the whole franchise right now or to teach Mitch Marner to score when it counts or anything like that. <laughs> it's to insulate you from the expansion draft a little bit better. And so on that score, it makes sense. Even if we do kind of wish we were guaranteed to keep McCann. Because I do. I, I do like him looking at his profile. Right. I mean, I, I think when you look at the trade, we maybe didn't say this as, uh, with as much emphasis as we should. It's hard to find fault with the trade, right? We point we poked some holes in the in the McCann as a fancy stats god balloon, but the the reality is McCann could regress rather significantly from the last two years to league average and still be very good value on his contract and supremely overqualified for a third line setter role. Yeah, right. So in that sense, it's very very hard to quibble with the trade, and I applaud Dubas trading with Brian Burke as often as possible. Frankly. I, I am comfortable in that matchup every time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, in that sense, like it, we should give Dubas some credit there. I think, like a lot of people in the fan base, we are just still kind of frustrated and, and numb from um, what was a honestly just completely embarrassing <laughs> playoff loss. And I think that word just needs to be used more when describing the Leafs. Mm-hmm. It's embarrassing. Yeah. Um, and that, yeah, this does, this is not... It's a little unfair to say to you know pin us at the feet of Dubas and say oh this isn't changing our, our trajectory as a franchise because those are hard to do generally you don't do that that often, um, but yeah this isn't changing anything dramatic right e- even in the scenario where we end up with McCann, um, and uh, and Hall right let's say we pay you know some pick or some some future asset some prospect that we don't have anymore um, to to protect uh, McCann effectively. Well, is this making us compete with Tampa, with Boston, with um, with Vegas, with Colorado as, as one of the true elite teams in the league? I would say no. Mm-hmm. I, I would say it helps. It's a little step along that direction, but it doesn't fundamentally change our roster in a meaningful way. Yeah, I think... Or at least it probably doesn't. If McCann provides the exact same value they did last year, then yeah, sure, it does. But that relies on him repeating, you know, a 13% on-eye shooting percentage at 5v5. Um, a personal 15% shooting percentage, like it's, it's not as lucky or it's not as, not as likely to happen. Sorry. Yeah. You'd have to run super hot and carry a third line for us probably because I trust that I know we don't have a lot going on at left wing right now, but I do trust that our remaining forwards will be able to figure something out, but I do worry about the depth. You know, Pierre Engvall, I like the guy. He's very tall and has a very long neck. And I think that that's delightful. And you know, he plays pretty energetic defense he can, he can skate but like if he's your third line center something has gone a little bit awry yes and it's also worth noting like you know i mentioned that uh mccann didn't play a whole lot with malkin and uh or crosby certainly last year he barely played with either mm-hmm. even still his quality of line mates is probably better than he's going to get in at least bottom six um unless he plays quite a bit with jason spezza who and jason spezza does not regress and that's a lot like that, of ifs stacked on. Yeah. Yeah. There was like, you know, four or five ifs there. Yeah. Stringer conditionals. Um, a little concerning. Right. Like, because last year he played a good amount with uh, Jeff Carter, who is old, but like, I mean, that's kind of a, a Spezza-ish type of player in terms of an old guy who, who still has the hands, but maybe not the, the mobility that he used to. Uh, played with Jason Zucker, who might not be worth his five and a half million dollar contract, but is a good player to say, uh, you know, for sure. Uh, Evan Rodriguez, we talked about a bit last year. He's, he's a guy. Uh, Kasperi Kapanen, who had a very good year, uh, generally speaking, at least in terms of uh, the, the goal results. So, yeah, it's uh, it's there, there's reasons to think that his results won't translate one to one 
to Toronto. But as we said, there's reasons to believe that even if it comes down, we'll, we come out net-net positive. Right. And to some extent, the simplest defense of this deal, if it needs one, which it probably doesn't, but it's get good players on trades <laughs> that you win. And I think that, as Arvin has been saying, this looks like we got more coming back than we did paying out. And sure, that was facilitated by the fact that Pittsburgh was in trouble with the expansion draft. And sure, we might lose him, but on net, it's probably a good deal. It's just, if this is the signal moment of Kyle Dubas's offseason, that's going to be a disappointment. And so I don't expect it to mm -hmm. be, but more has to follow, whether it's trades or free agency or something. So I guess we'll, we'll see there. Um, any more thoughts about McCann? Or... Uh, nothing in particular. I mean, so the protectionist is now confirmed. Uh, Chris Johnson uh, tweeted it out. So just for the sake of having it, here we protected Marner, Matthews, Nienander, Tavares, Brody, Hall, Muzzin, Riley, Campbell. Available, therefore, is Kerfoot, McCann, Dermott, Brooks, Engvall, Simmons, Spezza. Only one of those guys can be taken. Right. So worst case scenario, we paid Hollander and a seventh for insurance uh, as to having a decent third line center, if not more. Um, if it... It's also possible it comes out that we, we paid extra to keep McCann as opposed to Kerfoot. Because, I, I mean, if I'm Seattle, I, I've said this a couple times, where I don't think people are talking about McCann as if he's, like, so, so, so much better than Kerfoot. And I don't see that. But I think it is more likely that he's better than Kerfoot than the reverse mm -hmm. next year. Right? Like, and, and by, you know, not a negligible amount. Like, I, I, if I gun to my head, I, I take McCann. I don't really think that much about it. Right. Um, so I don't see why Seattle would take Kerfoot as opposed to McCann. Unless we induce them to. I agree. And so th that's another reason that maybe I sound a little bit tentative discussing this deal. Because I do wonder if it's just, okay, this deal might effectively be Hollander in a seventh to protect Alexander Kerfoot. Um, which is not an indefensible move of, in its own right. But it's a bit different than the contours of the player that we're just talking about if he gets rerouted to the West Coast in three days. So Yeah. By the way, um, Tampa's protectionist, it, I just want to mention this because it's, it's hilarious. <laughs> So the people who they did not protect, I think, could form two-thirds of a good top six. Because you have Gord, Palat, Johnson, and Kalorn. Like... <laughs> as unprotected. <laughs> at the least, I mean, we have evidence. You can make a cup team where at least that's in the middle of your top, of your top nine. Like, that's yeah, a... Yeah. Come on. <laughs> Tampa, like... It, it has to be said, I mean, you know, people are, are throwing hissy fits about the cap with them, and we'll, we'll, we'll get to that. Yeah. Um, but they are just absolutely stacked, and they were deserving cup winners, and I'm glad they won it twice, because it's nice to know that sometimes I struggle with hockey, because being the best team seems to mean very little. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm very glad that what I view as the best team of the last two years, last three or four years, really, when you think about it, has, has won a couple cups. Yeah, you know, in February... I, like, I was just randomly, like, tweeting stupid things, as I do. But I, I just was looking at, you know, the the leaderboard of the contenders, and the Leafs seemed to be doing okay for a bit. And I looked, and I was like, oh, but Tampa's going to get Kucherov. And they're probably going to sweep the streets after that. And I was just like, you know, maybe someone will get lucky, but they're far and away the best team in the NHL. And then I got sort of caught up with other things, but... Basically, it was that simple. You know, sometimes it's just the obvious answer that the really, really good team is really, really good. So, mm. yeah. Also, sorry, I'm, as you can tell, as you, listeners can probably tell, we're pro like just scrolling Twitter <laughs> while protectionists are coming out yeah. as we're recording this. Um, so Jordan Eberle is available, um, oh. as is Josh Bailey from, from the Islanders. That's interesting. Um, 
Yeah, they protected Matt Martin, it looks like. Of course they fucking did. You know... Does he have a no, does he have a no move? Or they, do they have to protect him? Okay, let's look this up. Because it's not beyond the realm of possibility for Lou to do something like that. But giving Matt Martin a no move is like, what are you thinking? Wait, right? they protected Scott Mayfield. <laughs> okay, I'm... Uh, what? Okay, so they... Okay. So first of all, they did not have to protect Matt Martin. That's, okay. that's clear. But I think that they have to be thinking that we got to unload salary, right? They, they must be. Yeah. So they probably want to get rid of Eberle. But that does make them worse. Yeah, he's a, he's a decent player. I mean, they have an eye on the Anthony Bavillier extension and Adam yeah. Pellick. So maybe they're just thinking we're, we're pretty squeezed right now and we got to prioritize Seeing if we can get Seattle if I'm if happen. I'm Seattle, I I think I mean I haven't I don't know that much about the Islanders players, but like Eberle sticks out like a sore thumb at least to me visually. It's like oh I should definitely take that guy. I think Eberle has always looked better than his results to some extent. He's a visually super talented player. He had a ton of highlights. I mean he's <laughs> he's obviously good. Don't get me wrong. I'm just saying that. I I don't know if um if he'll live up to it. Yeah. Hmm. Lou's always doing something, and you know what? We've laughed at him enough times, and then every now and then it, it works out for him, and he goes to the conference finals again. So mm-hmm. I'll hesitate to laugh at him too hard, but I can't say I understand that. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so I think that's probably good for the expansion draft stuff. It's probably not great podcasting to just be like <laughs> just live, live podding Twitter as, it, as this happens. Um, but... Yeah, uh, what else do we want to discuss? There's a lot of just random news over the past couple of weeks. Yeah, you know, there was something that I realized, you know, as much as the Leafs frustrate me constantly, make me very mad, resent myself and the choices that I've made, but I do enjoy watching hockey when other teams are doing stuff that looks to be stupid, because that's really what it's all about for me. And we shouldn't jump to conclude that deals are stupid. You know, we should try and keep an open mind. Maybe there's something else going on here. But there were some wild maneuvers, and I don't know that they make a lot of sense. Right. And I think it's only fair that we start with the Duncan Keith trade. Oh my god, so much has happened that I forgot that was a thing. (laughs) Yeah, that feels like it's a million years ago at this point. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, so Duncan Keith, you may remember, uh was obviously a premier defenseman for the Chicago Blackhawks once upon a time. Won a couple of Norris's, won a Conn Smythe. He was a very fine player in his heyday, which it isn't anymore. And I want to emphasize that. He was still making $5.5 million against the cap this year and next. And this is a guy who's 38. He hasn't been good in a few years now. So it was a bit of a dicey proposition to begin with. Chicago has some incentive to try and clear salary. And yet Edmonton always seemed really keen on this deal. Like very eager to get him for whatever reason. So the eventual deal was Caleb Jones, who feels like the Dermot of Edmonton to me in shorthand, and a conditional third, um go to the, the Blackhawks, and the Edmonton Oilers get Duncan Keith, and then an AHLer named Tim Silverland. So, it looks like they paid an actual price for all of Duncan Keith's contract. And that's what's really striking about this, is that at this point in his career, Duncan Keith is 
very dubiously a net positive on that deal. Like, he makes a lot of money for how bad he's been lately. Right. I mean, we, we talk a lot about, um, man, Chicago's defense is, is brutal. Mm. And I think, you know, this is a very common thing that happens where a team will be playing, you know, the, the, a certain defense, usually a defenseman, very, very high up to poor results. And defenders of that team will say, well, obviously this guy isn't very good or it isn't have very, having very good results. Look at the teammates he's playing with, right? And look at how many minutes he's playing. It's like, well, yeah, but maybe the common factor is that the reason they are bad is because this team is paying a lot of minutes to a guy who isn't very good. Like, maybe he's the fundamental problem, mm-hmm. in addition to the other teammates who are also trash. Um, and, I mean, we went through this with Dion Phaneuf, right? And I, I 100% unironically made that argument at some point in 2013. Um, and I was wrong, but I've learned from it. And I think, you know, in five years, Chicago fans will be saying the same, effectively. Mm. And uh, Edmonton fans rationalizing this deal will probably recognize similar because, yeah, the reality is um, Duncan Keith has been the one of the most played players in uh, the NHL recently, and Chicago has not been all the better for it. He does have very tough usage. He does have bad teammates. I don't think the forwards are providing that much help defensively. At the same time, if he was good, you would think that he, they would kind of climb to respectability. I'm not saying, oh, he's bad because Chicago doesn't have like a top 10 defense. No, Chicago has a brutal defense. If they were league average, I'd be you know more and more sanguine about this, but they're, they're awful. Mm-hmm. And a big part of that is because they're playing a guy who has had a lot of hard miles on him, is getting up there, and it just might not be that good anymore. Right, and you can look at this and say, okay... But he's in a very bad situation. He will look better when we ask him to do less. He probably will look somewhat better if you ask him to do less. Assuming the aging curve doesn't just eat him alive. But even so, there's a question of why are you paying full freight for a guy who might not look terrible if you don't ask him to do too much? Like, all of these conditionals are, okay, you're still acquiring a $5.5 million defenseman who's 38, not a lot of 38-year-olds left in the NHL at this point in time. And you're talking yourself into this why. And the answer, of course, is because he has three Stanley Cup rings. And he earned them. He belonged on those teams. He was a terrific player. He will make the Hall of Fame. But at this point in time, you have to recognize that he's not what he once was. You know, there's an old Sam Pollock quote, and he was the GM of the Habs. So I, I loathe him, but he was also an extremely smart man, and he said, I pay for futures, not for pasts. And so he was sometimes quite ruthless, and he has an inordinate number of cup rings to show for it. I think the Duncan Key thing is the cleanest example of paying a player for who he used to be, and not insisting on a discount. Like, if you get this at half retained, I'm not saying it's the best thing in the world, but Duncan Keith at 2.7... That probably feels a lot better than 5.5. And, you know, to cap it all off, there's a question of who were they bidding against. Keith wanted to go to Western right. Canada, and not many teams seemed to be in on him. Yeah, so, like, Keith's market was four teams. Um, he had a full no-move. Edmonton is probably the most attractive of those teams. I know I know, Winnipeg made it farther in the playoffs, but, I, I mean, it's Winnipeg. Uh, with, with, you know, no offense meant to anyone who hails from there. Um, yeah, like it's just not considered a particularly attractive market to play in. And there's also no Connor McDavid, mm-hmm. right? Uh, I think there is a huge appeal in, in playing with Connor McDavid, mm-hmm. um, even as a defenseman. So 
yeah, it's like who 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 are they bidding against? How could how what leverage did Chicago have? Chicago has to get rid of him, more or less, right? Like it's just absurd if they don't. He's a complete boat anchor. Yeah, it really feels like Edmonton just decided we really want this guy for whatever reason. And when you do that, you start losing negotiations. It's mm. just that simple. And I get it in some circumstances. Like there are sometimes players where it's like, oh, I know this is a bit rich, but he's really, really good. But again, that's Duncan Keith six years ago. That's not Duncan Keith today. And so I, I think that there was a certain amount of magical thinking on the part of Ken Holland. Um, you know, he's, he's been better than Pete Chiarelli in Edmonton, but I think increasingly he owns this roster and there's a real question of what they're doing. We haven't even tried to address the expansion draft implications here because again, who knows how that'll go, but they did not make their situation any easier by getting Duncan Keith. They presumably did not get him to expose him. And so there's a, <laughs> that'll be something. Yeah. It's just, we paid some assets and then we did this. But I don't think Seattle would take him even if they did, so maybe they should. The reality is, I do really think that this is just a matter of falling in love with, we need someone to teach these guys how to win, and someone had a tweet joking that Duncan Keith will come and be like, oh, here's the secret of how you win, it's good cap allocation. (laughs) And then McDavid just starts crying, so who knows. Yeah, I I mean, those Chicago teams were also hella stacked, right? Like... Keith was a very, very, very good player on, on those teams. Yeah. They, all, they also probably don't win at least the first one without, you know, having the absurd depth that they've had on, like, the third line. You know, like, Dustin Bufflin was a, a depth player there. Seriously. Andrew Ladd was a depth player there. I honestly am kind of staggered that we don't mention more what an insane team the 2010 Hawks were because they they're, kept losing players and staying good. Yeah, they're one of the best um, post-cap teams. Like, I think them, the... 07 Red Wings? 08 Red Wings, yeah. I guess it would have been. Uh, and Tampa. Oh, no, no, 07 Red Wings, sorry. Yeah. And Tampa. And then, yeah, Tampa of the last couple of years. Like, they're, in my opinion, the three best teams of the cap era. Yeah. And I think that that's very clear. Just you look at everyone they had. Hjalmarsson, Brian Campbell, just randomly there. Marion Hosa, who should be in the Hall of Fame. You know, like, all just sorts of players. And so, yeah, it was just a, a questionable decision all around. Was it the most questionable decision made this week? Actually, probably not. <laughs> <laughs> well, just one more yeah, thing before we, yeah. before we move on. Um, one of my f- the most fun parts about this was like Holland being like very defensive of the trade in the media because the media were like kind of asked like, you know, <laughs> it, it, people were, were kind of like, hey, you know, wh- wh- why'd you give up so much? You know, it seems like a bad and idea. Like, you know, yeah, you got to give up something to get something. It's like, well, do you really? Did you did you get something in the in the classical sense of those words? <laughs> Right, like I love just because that's the defense of any trade ever. Well, you got to give up something to get something. Yeah, but these things, you know, (laughs) our incredulity is because we don't think you got very much. Yeah, no, we didn't expect you to get him for zero, like trade. Although maybe you could have. Maybe you did. Yeah, you know what? Point taken. Because I'm not like he may be clear as waivers in some universes. So Hmm. yeah. Anyway. Just sort of oh, a weird. Movie. Sorry, one last thing. Yeah. I keep I keep doing Let's this. Do it. Um, this led to one of Fuleman's best tweets, in my opinion, <laughs> where he, um, where he, basically mocked. I mean, it's not Mark Spector, but maybe it's Spark Mechter. <laughs> it's Mark. Uh, you know, it wasn't wasn't named here, but he he wrote like you know a third of an article 
that I expect to see in the you know Edmonton Journal, wherever Mark Spector writes, um, where just kind of praising this uh, acquisition. And I, I'm just gonna. I'm sorry. I'm gonna read this verbatim. Just it's it's too good. Okay, I'm, it's no, too I'm good. blushing here. So I'm yeah. This is so, all not on visual. I, I really think you do have to read this because it's so much better when you when you can read it with like the vocal inflections too, as opposed to just the text. But like. This, this is what Fuleman um, wrote as Spark Mechter. There was no cap crunch tonight. Not there on the ice. There were just hockey players. And some pretty good ones at that. The big takeaway from Edmonton's 6-5 victory over the LA Kings, aside from Connor McDavid's four points, was Diamond Duncan Keith. Back before the social justice warriors got a hold of things, we would have called him a beauty. A big boy playing big boy hockey. A lot of the chattering classes so that Keith didn't have the goods anymore, despite his three championships. Well, maybe it's time to recognize that Ken Holland, who's collected a few rings himself in his day, knows a little bit more about hockey than the congregation of Corsi. I know plus minus is out of fashion, but Keith rolled to a plus one tonight, the third time in the last seven games. He's, and then it dribbles out into, into just words. <laughs> but it's just, just so on brand and so perfect. Okay, because in my heart, those articles that he does make me mad. Mark Spector is one of the very few columnist who i'm just gonna be honest here he actually gets to me he makes me annoyed because he's such a jerk and he's so smug about all this stuff and he did this by the way he did an article very akin to this uh for the hall for larson trade and mm-hmm. you know basically saying you know what uh oh what was it adam larson's oilers win a game that taylor hall's Oilers never could have and it was like some game in november against like freaking calgary or something it's like who gives a shit <laughs> anyway um, he will do this though. So I mean that sincerely. Anyway. I, okay. Anyway. So now, now we can move, actually move on. Sorry. <laughs> sorry to, to belabor that. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> always make fun of Mark Spector. And yet I think we kind of knew Keith was coming because it was in the chatter for a time. This next pair of decisions caught me really off guard. I did not see this coming at all. The players involved didn't see this coming at all. It wasn't really in the news. But the Minnesota Wild bought out Zach Parise and Ryan Suter. Now, Parise and Suter signed these absolutely enormous matching deals in, way back in 2012. And this was the tail end of when you could still sign these deals, and it went directly into a lockout, where one of the outcomes was these contracts were made illegal. But they were 13-year contracts with a cap hit of $7.538 million. And way back in the before times, for you youngins who don't remember cap transactions from a decade ago, this used to be how, like, every big deal went. Because the idea was you would sign a guy for 10, 15 tops years, and the salary would drop really, really low by the end of it. And he would just retire out of it, and you would get out of the cap hit. But because the contracts cap hit is based on average annual value tacking on a bunch of years at the end where he's supposedly going to only make 1 million that lowers it for the whole contract anyway there were a ton of these deals the league eventually got mad at them they banned them you can't make the value swing this much and you can't sign deals over eight years anymore so here we are still though these deals existed and so you still had parisian suitor who were now 36 and still had four years left but the Minnesota Wild bought them both out and basically ate 
one of the hugest dead cap hits I've ever seen in total. Like, this season, they saved some money against the salary cap. Next year, they are going to have $12.7 million going to two guys who are not playing for them in cap hit. And it's in that range for a couple more years after that. Like, they have really tied their own hands a little bit. And you can say, like, well, they still had those players. Yeah, but they still had those players. Ryan Suter was still playing at a pretty decent level. And now that cap hit is just for a guy who obviously isn't doing anything for them. It was a pretty striking decision. It is, and it seems to be born out of the fact that they just don't want them there anymore. Like, it seemed almost personal. It did. And it's, like, it's really striking. And so... It's, it has to be said again, the expansion draft is sort of a factor here. It Like, the, the Wild were going to have to probably expose Matt Dumba. What was one of the, the outcomes here, and now they don't have to do that, which is nice. But still, that's a, a lot to take on there. And so, it you know, there was a hatchet job in the Minnesota Star Tribune, or whatever the, the local paper is not called over there. But it was the kind of thing that we usually see out of Boston every time a player leaves, where they just, like, stick the knives in on the way out the door. And it basically said, look, Parise was kind of a diva. Suter was sort of a phony who constantly tried to be buddy-buddy with the owner of the Wild. And, you know, if you're a general manager, you maybe don't love that a player keeps buddying up to your boss and going above you on certain things. But still, it, it feels like Garen really just was like, yeah, I'm tired of these fucking guys. You know, let's get rid of them. From a cap perspective, it, they get like essentially one year of significant relief, and then it is pretty significantly harmful thereafter, correct? Yeah, like, it's it's going to sting. And again, you know, you can say, like, look, they had $15 million against the cap anyway for these guys. But they're, like, just, you're eating a ton of money for nothing. I can't get over that you're getting nothing. And Parise was pretty far on the way down but again Suter was still playing at a at least top four level depending on who you ask that's a lot to give up and so yeah it like it really feels personal it feels vindictive and he was just like I just want rid of these guys I have no idea what Minnesota is going to do now because yeah you have cap money for one year who are you going to sign for one year that's really going to make the Minnesota wild a contender and then after that, you've got a mess on your hands. Um, and yeah, they're going to have to fit a, probably a Kaprizov long-term deal in, you know, around that, which is odd. Yeah, and Kaprizov is already like making noises that seem to indicate he wants a hell of a deal. You know? Yeah. And yeah. Also, I, I just enjoyed this little tidbit. But you know, they freed up all this money for this year, and someone asked him. Uh, you know, well, does this mean now you have more money to pay Kaprizov and whatever? And he, and Gurren was like, no, 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 not at all, of course. I'm not paying him more money. And I feel like Kaprizov was like, I have some thoughts about that. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I, I don't know about this deal at all. Uh, this decision to, to make. Yes. So, yeah. Um, it's possible, look, this works out better than I expect. It's also possible that for the next few years, the Minnesota Wild are going to finish like 17th in the NHL the way that they always do and just were left baffled that they made this choice. So that's a fun one. I love when teams do weird stuff like that. 
it, it just lightens my day. Not when the, it's the Leafs. When it's any yeah. any other team. But, yeah. Any other thoughts on that? No, just that it's very odd. I'm curious to see how it turns out. And then I think the other thing I'm very curious to see how it turns out is um, Ottawa. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Because Ottawa hired um, Pierre Regis Maguire. That's such a fun little To be their... I forget what the actual title is, but it's basically like a direct report to Pierre Dorian. Yeah. It's he's like a player development guy, I believe. Yeah, VP of player development, mm-hmm. something like that. Yeah. Um now the interesting thing here is that Dorian also only has one more year on his contract. And there's I mean, look, this is twenty five years ago at this point. Um, but Maguire was not a popular man in the NHL or anywhere of his employment. When he was last in the NHL, he was viewed as haughty, as arrogant, as way too smug and self-satisfied for what he had actually done. So I, I wonder how it's going to work in the context of him possibly having a lame duck boss. I can kind of see a scenario where maybe he kind of knifes him. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's not an uncommon way for a guy to get a job. It, and I think McGuire has ambitions of being a GM still. I think a starting point on this is, do you think that this was Pierre Dorian's decision? I don't. No, I don't. I think this was Eugene oh. Nelnick's decision, and he sort of hinted as much in interviews. He was like, yeah, yeah. You know, we, we wanted him in there. And, it, and, you know, if I'm Dorian, I'm thinking... Okay, this is like the the coaching hire where you get a really really established guy at assistant coach. And this is the, the GM thing of hiring Bruce Boudreaux to be an assistant under Shelton Keefe. Right, because suddenly firing you or not renewing you in the case of Dorian's contract at the end of next season. Yeah, the the Senators don't want to fire people because that means you have to pay out. Yeah, no, uh, we can't have that. So yeah, it starts to become more plausible if you have a successor right on hand. And you've already introduced him to the organization. Now, Pierre Maguire has been a commentator on American television for a while now, since obviously his executive career hit a bit of a speed bump on account of him being a disaster. So, yes, the, the one way this is not like hiring Bruce Boudreaux is that Bruce Boudreaux is quite good at his job and Pierre <laughs> Maguire does not appear to be. No. And you know what? Let's start with the possibility that he's learned things in the past couple of decades. People grow, people yes. change. Great. Um, but... Um, the thing about Pierre Maguire is that he has a couple of very distinctive traits. The first one is he looks like a turtle. That's okay. Uh, the second one is that he is this repository of factoids on hockey players where it's like, did you know that this guy's uncle played in Moose Jaw in 1987? No, I didn't, Pierre. Thank you. But he's full of like just these obscure little connections and he knows who played with who. If... Your goal is to build a team to win an NHL-themed version of Jeopardy. I think Pierre Maguire is the first overall pick. In all seriousness, yes. I think if your goal is to win a Stanley Cup, he's, you know, somewhere between the 1,000th and 1,050th pick. (laughs) Yeah, there's an open question here about how useful is this knowledge. Now, it's possible that that knowledge is sort of a reflection of stuff that might be worth something. Of being connected with guys. If, you know, uh, a player comes into the organization from the Cape Breton Screaming Eagles. And Pierre Maguire knows the trainer at the Cape Breton Screaming Eagles. And he says, hey, what's this guy like? You know? Is he committed? Is he putting in the extra reps? Stuff like that. I don't know. But you can at least see 
that he might have knowledge that could be an asset. And you could even see if the argument is a guy in the room, you can say, okay, we're going to have people who balance out peers, foibles and flaws, but we do want his knowledge in the conversation. And I do not think that it would be totally impossible for a team to build a group where I could see Pierre Maguire maybe doing something. The striking thing though, is that he's anti-analytics. And I want to specify what I mean by that. There are lots of GMs and executives who I don't think are the hugest on analytics. I don't think Lou Lamorello is like a big analytics guy. I'm not saying he shuts it out, but I don't think it's his first thing. But Pierre Maguire has made comment after comment where he basically says things that are just demonstrably wrong because he hates them. Like he's a big non-believer in analytics. Like I think there's a difference between not being super enthusiastic about it and wanting to prioritize other things. And he actually seems to hate them. And he shows a really deep misunderstanding of them. Like if you put Pierre Maguire in charge of a team and then you have the analytics person, the analytics person might as well be sending emails into their trash can because I do not think that they will influence decisions. Right. And I mean, I think some people said, oh, he's only focusing on player development and that sort and not the overall GMing roster. And it's like, well, I'm, I'm a little surprised if Pierre Maguire is really the type of guy to stick to his very defined and narrow job description as opposed to wanting his voice heard more broadly. I also don't think you hire a guy as a direct report to uh, a GM and say, oh, no, 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 you're not actually dealing with any of the NHL team. Mm. It'd be unusual. Right. And so there's a real question there as to was he hired because he's a face on TV? Eugene Melnick would recognize him. He's perceived as a voice of authority. He's known. He has some name recognition, all that sort of stuff. And there's one other thing that's sort of related to the anti-analytics thing that I just wanted to mention because this makes me annoyed. Uh, when we was asked about it, McGuire gave the very prepared standard answer to this thing. He says, well, I think there are things that you can't measure. And I think analytics can be a useful tool, but they can't be the whole picture. No one ever disagrees with that. That like all of those things are indisputable, that there are obviously things that don't show up on an RAPM chart. And I want to emphasize the people who make the RAPM charts and everyone else know that and acknowledge that, you know, no one thinks that this is the sole answer, but it's not enough to just say, oh, well, I don't think it's the whole picture because of course everyone says that. And it's not enough to just say, I think that they're one tool when everything else that he said for about 15 years has indicated he doesn't think that they're any kind of tool. Yeah. One of the most common kind of Pierre Maguire tropes is like, he'll point to uh, a random player, you know, he'll say, you know, Zach Aston Reese. Analytics don't tell you how good Zach Aston Reese is, the commitment he puts in, how much he helps this team in the defensive zone. And it actually, as it turns out, Zach Aston Reese looks quite good by most analytics. He said this about Patrice Bergeron, who is yeah. like maybe the greatest analytics player of all time. Like, the, at least yeah. it's arguable. It's like he was the ultimate guy who definitely showed well by all of these and always has and still does. Yes, exactly. And I think, you know, the... In a sense, it's almost a point in his favor because I think McGuire's eye test is genuinely pretty decent. Mm. Um, but no one's eye test bats 1,000. No one's eye test even bats 900, I don't think. And I also think with an eye test, you're limited by how many people you can watch, by how much time you have. And 
there's constraints there. You can't watch every single player from every single team in detail. And right? the same reason we kind of scoff at like people who say like, oh yeah, I, I, I cover every single league in the, in the draft, but it's not my full-time job. It's like, oh, okay, that's a lot of players. Are you sure you can cover all that? No, there are only um, so many hours in a day. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, with McGuire, I, I'm, I'm very happy that he's been hired. I think this will lead to a lot of comedy. <laughs> maybe I'm wrong. Maybe he'll be phenomenal. I'm, I'm not anticipating it. Yeah, I, I don't know about all that. I, I'll be really mad if the Leafs hired him. Yes, yes, I would be livid. And I also... I am real curious to see how that Pierre Dorian thing works out, because if I'm him, I am watching my back every single day now. Yeah. Again, it, it, it really can't be overstated enough how poorly Maguire seems to be viewed by like everyone who worked with him. Again, this is like the early 90s. It's been a long time. Mm-hmm. But none of the stories that we've seen from that time have painted him in a favorable light in any way, really. Yeah, like, there were remarks, what was it, Pat Verbeek basically said none of the players liked or respected him or something like that. Like, it was really staggering. And there's this story, possibly, like, false, but of how he was bragging about how his defensive system shut down Mario Lemieux or something in a game they lost 6-5 or something like that. And like Mew didn't score, but he had like three assists. Yeah, what a shutdown job. Like, I don't know. Yeah, I, I do think that there was certainly some arrogance. Now, again, I will leave open the possibility that he's gotten less arrogant and maybe a little wiser with age. Hopefully we all do. But a lot of his statements would make me real worried if I were an Ottawa Sens fan. Yeah, very much so. Um, do you want to briefly discuss the Nick Letty thing? Or is that... Yeah. Uh, yeah, well, it's like, it's, it's one of those weird. things where <laughs> it, it is. And it's also like one of those things where, you know, let's see how Lou wriggles himself out of this jam. And then he just does it effortlessly somehow. Yeah. And, and you know, it's kind of frustrating, but it's also worth noting. The truth is we made fun of Ken Holland, who, you know, I think is, is a good GM for 2002. And... Pierre Maguire, who I think is a bad GM forever, and Bill Guerin, who I think may be insane. But Steve Eiserman is generally considered to be very smart. Yeah, and even with, we should also mention with Lou, like we've criticized him at points, but like he's clearly at least okay. Like he yeah. has strengths and weaknesses. He ha- and those weaknesses are, are are notable at times, but he's not without merits as a GM. And I think it's. Na- naive and insane almost to say otherwise yeah uh, like e- e- even even if i may prefer tubus um lamorello is not without strengths and without good points yeah as a gm like the thing about lamorello is that he is a professional like he's done this his whole life based well not his whole life but he's done this for decades and he is very experienced at operating that means that he can be a bit of a stick in the mud sometimes he can have his, his blind spots but he also approaches this with a lot of experience, and I think sometimes maybe younger fans can discount that a little bit because he seems like a dinosaur. It's like you do learn things doing this forever, and I don't, I don't think that's nothing. But Iserman was considered one of the best executives in hockey. You know, he did a lot to build uh, the Tampa Bay Lightning team that we've been adulating throughout this podcast. And then he took over the Detroit Red Wings, They've been terrible since he got there. That's expected. 
they were terrible before he got there. He was there to shepherd a rebuild. And so he's in the process of doing that. But he took on Nick Letty from the New York Islanders. Nick Letty had one year left at 5.5, and it was not going so hot for Nick Letty in, in recent times. Um, in exchange for that, he gave them Richard Ponick, who was is, is close to a deadweight forward, but is making uh, $2.75 million. He retained half on Panic, and he gave them a second-round pick. It really feels like the Islanders got out of a, a cap crunch and were paid to do so. Like, this deal would be more comprehensible if there were no retention on Panic and the second were on the other end of it. And that would make a lot of sense to me. But it feels like a thing, a player that you should have had to pay to get rid of Instead, Iserman paid to acquire. And I find that weird. Because I don't think that he does silly things for no reason. And so is it just, did he really like the player? Does he plan to flip them in the trade deadline? He thinks I'll get it back? Or is there something, something else going on here? And I'm not sure. Yeah, one other hilarious thing is that I feel like the Oilers would have been better just making this deal for... <laughs> For Letty than for um, Keith. Not because I think Letty's particularly good or anything, but because his contract is shorter. Yeah, like it's over at the end of this year. Also, I'm just saying, Nick Letty does have a couple of cup rings from the Blackhawks, so he's like two-thirds as good as Duncan Keith by this metric. Yeah, yeah. and so it's, it's interesting when GMs that you think are smart do things that you think are silly. And then you have to think, okay, what am I missing? Have I misestimated them? Or is there is there a blind spot here? Does... You know, Steve Eiserman think that Nick Letty is maybe going to teach the children something? Because um, Detroit's defense could probably use some education and some different players. Uh, or is there some other hidden factor here? And I don't have a good conclusion to this segment because I don't know. Uh, but it, it does, you know, sometimes the simplest answer is just the GM liked the player and he decided to pay for him, even though it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Mm. Yeah. So, yeah, it was a fun week for uh, weird moves. I feel like we will hopefully get even more of those in the coming weeks. Oh, yeah, I, ho I hope so. Yeah. And I, also, I also hope that, you know, the Leafs can capitalize on this weirdness and, I don't know, get better players more or less. <laughs> yeah, just get better guys. I don't know get what Get better say players. Anymore. Don't pay them very much money, really. <laughs> That's a plan. Yeah, it's worth a shot. But, yeah, we're, we're fully into silly season now, so I'm... I'm really hoping for some some weird outcomes. Yes. Uh, all right, cool. Is there anything else we wanted to discuss today, or is that everything? I'm good. Awesome. So uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. You can catch all of mine and Fulliman's stuff at pensionpanpuppets.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at RVNATFulliman. Uh, we will see you in a couple weeks. Take care. Take care.